Welcome to the Rebel Large Adventure Podcast. I'm Drifter. And I'm Gypsy. Talking about ghost towns, graveyards, outlaws, heroes, and ladies of the night. And lately trained. Well, howdy, folks. <laughs> Thanks for joining us for yet another adventure. Today, we are taking you to a grave, a monument befitting a king, wherein lies the body of a man, an enterprising fellow, both loved and loathed perhaps more of the latter. His work and his name have been known around the world, yet mostly forgotten to history. The man securely entombed just a few blocks from the shores of Lake Michigan is none other than George Pullman. We talked a bit about George Pullman in Mile Marker 23 regarding the Graceland Cemetery in Chicago. Today, we are going to share with you a lot more details about him and what he was able to accomplish during his lifetime. We figured since we just talked about the Golden Spike Monument, why not continue on, right? Yep. And we're going to tell you about the man that made the travel across the U.S. in a train a luxurious thing. Well, George Mortimer Pullman was born on March 3rd, 1831 in Brockton, New York to James and Emily Pullman. He was the third of 10 children and the third oldest son. At the age of 14, the family moved to Albion, New York so that his father could work on the Erie Canal. His father's occupation is listed as a carpenter, but his specialty was moving structures out of the way for construction on the canal. When his father passed away in 1853, George was 22 years old. He took over his father's business and continued working on the Erie Canal, where he won several contracts with the state to move about 20 more buildings. By 1857, George was in Chicago, where he was again raising buildings. This time, the buildings needed to be above the Lake Michigan floodplain because the city was installing a sewer system. His company was so successful, the city at one point had them move an entire city block. I don't think they moved the whole block at one point, like at the same time, but I think they collectively moved one it. One building at a time? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> As things were coming to an end, people were seeing it was actually cheaper to just rebuild a building rather than lift it. George knew that he needed another plan. Mm -hmm. Well, George had traveled several times by train from Chicago to New York, and he knew how uncomfortable and dirty it was. When he was approached by his friend Benjamin Field to partner up with him and build a new, better sleeping car for the railroad, he knew that this was the chance to change the path his life was on. Ben had the rights to operate the sleeping cars. George had the brains to remodel them and the money needed to do such a thing. The two men got to work redesigning the passenger cars into sleepers. They came up with the idea to place overhead beds in the cars for the passengers. This allowed them a chair to sit in and a bed at night above their heads. Before this, the passengers would have little to no legroom and no place to lay down and rest at night. The new sleeping cars debuted in August of 1859 and they became a huge success. That same year, people were making the large move out west to Colorado. If you remember, when we talked about the Tabers, they arrived in Colorado that year. And that was mile marker 18, if you want to go back and take a listen. For your ear meets? Yeah. <laughs> George and James E. Lyon opened Cold Springs Ranch in Central City. They operated an ore-crushing mill and mercantile store where they supplied miners with meals, a place to sleep, basic supplies, and the ability to change out tired animals for fresh ones to make it up the mountain pass. The area eventually became known as the Pullman's Switch. Yeah, this concept was 
brilliant, otherwise one would have to stay the night to rest up their horses, which would cost livery fees to feed and water them, plus a hotel if you're not able to find a suitable place to take care of it all on your own. He didn't stay out west for long before he moved back to Chicago in 1860s. He and Ben got back to work expanding their sleeping car business and created what they called the Pioneer. This new and improved sleeping car was released in 1865. It had folding upper berths and cushion seats that could be extended to make lower berths. Kind of reminds me of like a motor home. Yeah. With the bed that comes down up above. Yep, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, these train cars were expensive to make, and the rail lines didn't want to pay Pullman to use them because they felt they wouldn't get their money back from the passengers. Pullman came up with a great idea. When Abraham Lincoln passed away, he let his newly widowed wife, Mary Todd, use the train for free to travel around in while they went from state to state with the president's body, ending in Springfield, Illinois. That's for, good advertising. It's a nice free advertisement for him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> On June 13, 1867, George was married to Harriet Sanger, the daughter of a construction company owner. He also ended his business relationship with Ben that year and created the Pullman Palace Car Company. I love that name. Pullman mm-hmm. Palace Car. Mm-hmm. The two of them did not end on bad terms. Ben was more interested in politics rather than rail cars. When they parted ways, he gave all the rights to the sleeping cars to George with the agreement that he would give him future loans. Probably for his political campaigning, right? Mm-hmm, I would imagine. If he didn't have enough on his plate already... This year, the Illinois legislature began to use the sleeping cars regularly. George owned every single car that he built, and he would only rent them out for use. With such demand for the sleeping cars, he needed to figure out a way to build more of them. Well, the new company designed their first hotel on wheels named The President. It was a sleeper car that had an attached kitchen and dining car. This way... Folks could travel with guests and provide them with all the luxuries. The following year, 1868, he launched the Delmonico. This was the first sleeping car that offered fine dining, which rivaled the best restaurants of the day, and the service was impeccable. This same year, his wife Harriet gave birth to their first child, baby girl Florence. The next year, 1869, brought more excitement and expansion to the company when George bought the Detroit Car and Manufacturing Company. This gave him the ability to consolidate all his manufacturing operations into one facility. By this time, his company was building five different styles of cars. So they had the hotel cars, parlor cars, reclining room cars, diners, and sleepers. Probably depending on which car you would go in would depend on the price you would pay to be in that car, I would guess, right? Mm -hmm. The family grew again this year when they welcomed in daughter number two, Harriet. George wanted the rail car market to himself. In 1870, he bought out his main competitor, the Central Transportation Company. Over the next five years, the company worked hard at making their rail cars the only high-end traveling cars on the tracks. In 1875, the family grew one last time when Harriet gave birth to twin boys, George Jr. and Walter Sanger. In 1872, the family moved to 1729 South Prairie Avenue in Chicago. George had the two-story mansion built for them by Henry S. Jaffrey at a cost somewhere between 350 to 500,000. That's between 8 and 11 million dollars in today's coin. For a house. Yeah. 
Well, you'll see why that house costs that much. So the house was measured at 7,000 square feet per floor. So a total of 14,000 square feet for yeah. a house. Yeah, that's insane. Uh, they had a private garden with illuminated fountains, a 200-seat theater, a billiard room, a bowling alley, and a large conservatory. Kind of reminds me of the game Clue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they, <laughs> sorry, I thought that was funny. Colonel Mustard and the Candlestick, I got it already. Nailed it. Yep. Um, it was said that they would entertain up to 400 guests in the home regularly. They had a butler, coachman, cook, laundress, housemaid, nurse, and a lady's maid living with them and taking care of their every need. In 1892, they added more space to the house when they put a huge palm room with a 40-foot leaded glass dome. When Harriet passed away in 1921, all the furnishings were sold at auction and the building was demolished that next year. Why, you might ask? I might. <laughs> all I could find is that she just had it put in her will that that's what she wanted done. Yeah, just didn't want anybody else soiling her house, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of true. I didn't think about that. Mm. In 1888, the family built Castle Rest on Pullman Island in Alexandra Bay in the Thousand Islands between New York and Ontario. So he mainly built this house for his mother so she could have a vacation home. And the family would get together every year on the island for her birthday. So from what we could see, the house is still standing on the island. It's just not called Pullman Island anymore. Didn't you say that he at a time owned what is Hart Island as well? Yeah. When he owned Pullman Island, he owned Hart Island. And I don't know how the city of New York got a hold of the island. I don't know if he passed away and then the city obtained it or what, but it was re-spelt Hart Island, but it's still called Hart Island. Mm -hmm. And that's where like the insane asylum and everything was. And there's a like mass grave burial there. Yeah. The whole island is cemetery anymore it seems so uh-huh and they um you can't go out to that island unless you have a family member that's buried out there yeah so we have no pictures of that of yeah nor do i think we'll ever be able to make it out there it would be really cool to go out there though there's still some buildings standing from what i've seen in the past mm -hmm. but pretty neat that he owned that at one point yeah kind of fun I think I read, too, that his mother owned an island in that area as well, and she couldn't keep up on her house. And so he sold her house and the island and everything, and then that's when he built the house for her mm -hmm. so that he could help her maintain, quote unquote, her house, but it was still kind of his house. <laughs> yeah, I had to sell my island out there, too. It's kind of expensive to get everything you need out there. The yeah. cost of lumber, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So how was George able to acquire so much money to live this life of luxury? Some say that George was a terrible man. Others say that he was a visionary genius. By 1879, the company had 464 cars for lease, a gross annual earnings of $2.2 Which is nearly $61 million today. And a net annual profit of almost a million. Which is $27.6 million. And I had you explain to me the net income is essentially, Profit. yeah, what you make after you pay your wages, yep. everything. Yep. That's insane. Yeah. 
So the growth for the company continued on, and by the 1890s, it had a capitalization of more than $36 million, which is just over a billion dollars today. Wow, George. Yeah, so this house wasn't that big of a deal for him to build. No. He's like, oh, that's just pennies to me. <laughs> well, I bet his uh, buddy Ben was pretty happy to see the money that he was making so that he could borrow some of it from him. Yeah. He just keeps running for politics even though he loses just to get more money from them. (laughs) Right. Yeah, it's kind of fun. You've got to entertain with fancy champagne and cigars. Yeah. Well, Mr. Pullman had an interesting way of doing business, I reckon. He wanted to provide his workers with a life of peace, happiness, and comfort. In 1879, he came up with the idea to build the town of Pullman. And in 1880, his dream came to life when he purchased four thousand acres for eight hundred thousand dollars and that's nearly 21.7 million bucks today that's not bad for four thousand acres right (laughs) yeah this land was adjacent to its factory and near lake colument the area was about 14 miles south from chicago he saw this as a way to help his employees with poverty by giving them a place to live there were 1300 buildings in the town and a majority of them were houses But he also had shopping areas, theaters, parks, a library, and a church. In the middle of the town was the large red brick administration building and the Hotel Florence named after his daughter. The town had a brickyard just south of it that was used to supply them with the materials needed for the first all-brick city. It wasn't going to chance getting this thing burnt down. Yeah. Uh, The houses were laid out in rows with the streets in front and an alley in the rear for the daily trash collection. Each house had indoor plumbing and were relatively spacious. Their houses were well above the standards of the day. George Pullman prohibited independent newspapers, no public speeches, and no town meetings. He would not allow a bar or a red light district in the town either. He had his own team of inspectors that would enter houses regularly to check for cleanliness. If things weren't upkept, they could terminate the lease on a 10-day notice. In order to cover the cost of the town, George would charge his employees rent to live there. He also believed that a person does not value those things for which they do not pay. By doing this, the company got back a 6% return on its investment. By 1892, the town had made George's company about $5 million. Which is about $152 million bucks today. Just off of rent, basically. Mm-hmm. This whole thing started as a great idea. The workers lived in the town they worked in, the town provided them everything they needed, and their town was beautifully designed. By the fall of 1883, the town's population topped 8,000 people. Not everyone that worked in the factory lived in the town. Many folks also lived in the neighboring towns. By living outside of Pullman, they had the ability to go to church, because even though the town of Pullman had a church, no worship was ever done out of it because the churches couldn't afford the rent. A little odd. Yeah. Living out of the town of Pullman also gave them the ability to go to the saloons. And, and the red light district. And Yeah, there's that. <laughs> and most importantly, they could one day own the house they were living in because, again, they were just renting from George. Yep. In Pullman, they would never have the ability to own the house they were staying in. Yeah, it would be a tough decision to make as an employee of the company Mm -hmm. because you could live in this really beautiful town with a really nice house and basically pay the same amount of money, but then you would never own it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So yeah, it would be hard to make that decision what to do. Mm -hmm. 
The town looked like such a success from the outside, and when the World's Columbian Exposition came to Chicago in 1893, people traveled to Pullman to see what it was all about. Even though there was a lot of travel to Chicago during the exposition that year, the country began to see the signs of the Great Depression, and George Pullman was not able to escape its effects. With too many poorly managed rail lines and a lack of funds for the people to travel for pleasure meant the Pullman factories did not get enough orders to run at full steam. So in order to save money, the company began to cut the employees' wages and increased working hours to lower costs. This is at the time when things start turning. Yep. He was doing good. Well, those that were living in the town of Pullman would have two checks issued to him on payday, one for the wages earned and one for rent. When they came around to give the paychecks, the rent collector would be in tow. These men would have to sign over the rent check right then and there. Also, every time they went to the grocery store, the money owed would be added to their bill. The bill for groceries would be taken out of their check as well, so by the time they received what was left of the check, it wasn't much money for them to live on. Some of the employees with larger families would end up getting no paycheck and still owing the grocery store money after they were paid. Right, so they had no money left over for clothes and, you know, basic necessities. Mm-hmm. Yep, they'd have to put it all on the bill at the grocery store. This, we see this a lot in the old mining towns. Yeah, yep. George took money out of his employees' pockets all the while his investors were getting their same amount of money that they were making prior. So they got no cuts in their wages, but their employees did. Mm-hmm. He did not reduce the rent for the price of goods and utilities in Pullman. The people living in the town were suffering. And the higher-ups in the company were living a lavish life. Well, in June of 1893, a group of men gathered to form the American Railway Union in Chicago. Later, we'll be referring to this as the ARU. A membership was open for any white man that worked on the railroad. They could be a coal miner, longshoreman, or a car builder, as long as they were an employee of the railroad they were in. Pullman's employees were eligible to join since the company owned and operated several miles of the railroad. The group of men grew to over 150,000 members. While the main focus of the group was to help settle any grievances with mediation, that wasn't always the case. Yeah. So the workers for Pullman had formed a grievance committee to negotiate with the company, but they were getting nowhere because George had every single one of the men that approached him on the matter fired. (laughs) I don't want to hear about it, so I'm firing you. On May 11th, 1894, a strike broke out in the factory against the advice of the American Railway Union. When several weeks had gone by and nothing was still being done at the Pullman Company to work with the employees, the ARU decided to join in on the strike and turned it on to a national level. The members of the ARU began to boycott the handling of Pullman cars By doing this, it crippled rail traffic nationwide. Workers across the country had also seen wages cut and were eager to take a stance. With the amount of men belonging to the ARU, the railroads saw it as a threat. In order to combat the refusal of handling the Pullman cars, the railroad began to replace anyone that walked off while on the job with the strike breakers. They then tried to sway the public opinion against the boycott by encouraging Pullman cars to be hitched to mail cars. But this just disrupted the delivery of mail. Bad idea. Yeah. So this kind of gives you an idea of how things went down over the next few days. By June 27th, 5,000 workers on the railroad left their jobs and 15 railroads were tied up. 
But the next day, 40,000 men had walked off and rail traffic was backed up on all lines west of Chicago. The third day brought the total to 100,000 men and at least 20 lines were at a complete stop. By the 30th, 125,000 workers had quit on 29 railroads rather than handle the Pullman cars. It's wild. Mm-hmm. Well, and to move that fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the strike didn't end at just the refusal to handle the Pullman cars. After a peaceful gathering in Blue Island, Illinois groups within the crowd became upset. They began to set fire to nearby buildings and derail locomotives. One of the locomotives was attached to a U.S. mail car. This kind of pissed off President Grover Cleveland because this prevented the federal government from fulfilling one of its most important duties, delivering the mail. Yeah, yep. The mail must go on, they say. (laughs) With the majority of the strike taking place in Chicago, people wanted something done about it there. Governor John P. Altgeld sympathized with the strikers, and he refused to call out the militia. Once the Pullman cars began to get hooked to the mill cars, the government had to get involved. On July 2nd, U.S. Attorney General Richard Only got an injunction from federal judges to halt acts impeding mill service and interstate commerce. On July 4th, President Grover Cleveland, acting on Olney's advice, ordered 2,500 federal troops to Chicago without the support from Governor John Altgeld. When the military arrived, Eugene V. Debs, the leader of the ARU, thought they were there to help with the riots and allow for a peaceful protest. Yet he quickly found out they were there for one reason and one reason only, to stop the protest in any way so that the trains could run on the tracks again. Can you imagine being the governor and then all of a sudden the militia just shows up and you're like, what the hell is going on right now? Yeah, something's happening. (laughs) Yeah. The sight of the military upset the strikers and they began to overturn more rail cars and build barricades to prevent troops from reaching the yards. In one section of the injunction only inquired, he had a stipulation that the leaders of the ARU could not talk to fellow ARU members. This meant that while the town was being destroyed, Debs could do nothing to try and calm down the crowds. By the 6th of July, some 6,000 rioters destroyed hundreds of rail cars in the South Chicago Panhandle Yards. I hope they had them insured. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if that was a thing at the time. Well, and can you imagine like when this was all over, just the destruction of everything and how would you clean that all up? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, with the military and police unable to gain control, things just continued to spiral into madness. The next day, the National Guardsmen were assaulted by the mob. They began to fire into the crowds and to try to get them to stop, which resulted in killing somewhere between four and 30 folks and wounding several more. Debs tried to call off the strike by telling all workers except those convicted of crimes be rehired without prejudice. But the railroads refused to hire the men back and instead began hiring non-union workers. The strike began to dwindle down and trains began to run again. By July 20th, the federal troops were recalled. George Pullman reopened on August 2nd, and he agreed to rehire the striking workers on one condition. They had to sign a pledge to never join a union again. By the time everything was over, it had cost the railroad millions in lost revenue, looting, and damages. The strikers had lost more than $1 million in wages, which was just over $32 million today. So not only did the men lose money in wages and gained nothing from the strike, the nation also began to turn their backs on them. 
Farmers were worried that their crops wouldn't make it to the market in time. Folks around the country had delays in getting mail and supplies and the price of lumber. <laughs> this is how it happens. Yes. And they feared the price and availability of goods would be affected by it. Yep, lumber. We hear about it every day. <laughs> the leaders of the ARU were all arrested and eventually served jail time for the strike. All the while, the railroad leaders and George Pullman were never sentenced to any jail time. Though George did not have to serve any jail time, his reputation was tarnished by the strike. A national commission was formed to study the causes of the 1894 strike. They found Pullman's paternalism partly to blame, and they continued on saying the town of Pullman was un-American. The report went on to condemn Pullman for refusing to negotiate with the ARU and for the economic hardship he created for workers in the town. The state of Illinois filed suit against the Pullman Company. In October 1898, they won, and their company was ordered to sell all non-industrial land holdings. Some of them, like the brickyard, sold quickly, which would kind of make sense. It would be something somebody would want. Yeah, I found it odd that they didn't consider that uh, an industrial land holding, being it's an in industry making bricks. But it was done just strictly for the town. So I guess yeah. that it didn't apply to the industry of making trains. Yeah, because he may very well have used it for the town and then stopped using it after that. Yeah. But yeah. it was set up already for a business. So Yeah. Yeah. The Illinois Central Railroad had owned the right-of-way past the front of the factory. Lake Vista was filled and new tracks and a road installed. The company was granted a deferment on its deadline to sell most of the town, and the residents were given the first option to buy their house they were living in. That's interesting. I wonder if they were reasonably priced or even better. Yeah, I don't know. I couldn't really find much detail. Um, a lot of the stuff on the town itself I found because it's now a, a national, like the national parks own it, mm -hmm. but they didn't really go into a lot of details. No. Yeah. Well, the Pullman Company thrived for years following the strike still. George didn't just focus his energy on building rail cars. He also headed a company that built the Metropolitan Elevated Railway System in New York City. He also focused on improving the sleeping cars, making them more glamorous and desirable. So another very interesting thing that George Pullman did with his company is the men he chose to hire to work inside the cars. Each car came with a porter, and a porter is basically like having a butler at your house. They would help with your luggage, bring you food and drinks, help get your bed ready at night, and they would even polish your shoes. Pretty much anything you needed, the porter was there to take care of you and to make sure you enjoyed your travels on the train. Hence the term Pullman Porter. So each train came with a porter. Yeah. So when George began to hire men for the position, the Civil War had recently ended. He found that the freed black men made some of the best workers. Most of the black men he hired were known as house slaves. They were ideal for the job because they already knew how to take care of folks' needs. They were loyal, and they were hard workers. He didn't pay the men very well, and he required the men to work about 20 hours a day. But the men would make most of their money from tips. Kind of like servers today, huh? Yeah, exactly. Uh, these porters during this time were called George. George. Some say that George Pullman made the decision to call them George just to make it easier for passengers to remember their name from train to train. I mm -hmm. get that. Yeah. 
Others say he chose to call him George because it was common for a slave owner to call his slaves by his name so everyone knew who they belonged to. Though it may seem like these men were poorly treated, this was actually the second highest paying job for a black man at the time. I think the postman was the highest paying. Well, these men were smart. They learned a lot from the passengers just by listening to them talk. They learned how to work the stock market. They learned that an education will get you further in life. And they learned how to interact with folks. They were also some of the most educated men in their community because they would read books left on the train as well as the newspapers, helping them stay up to date with current events. Yeah, I I was listening to a thing about them and these men would go to work and then they would come home and kind of tell their neighbors and their friends like, hey, I saw this in the stock market and they would kind of get together and start investing. And Mm -hmm. so they they helped their communities a lot, too, by relaying that information to them. Yeah, absolutely. The job for a porter was a highly sought after job and it was actually a very difficult one to get. Most of the men got a job because their father or brother was already a porter. These men did not just work as porters. They they were also cooks on the train and they had the ability to travel and see the world that most black men at that time, they never got the chance. The biggest downside was they were not allowed to move up in the company. There were no black train conductors, and the company had no plans to change it. Things eventually did change, but that didn't come until after George had passed away. So you were telling me a story that I liked about one, uh, the train was running by or mm-hmm. through what was a, the kids were using as a ballpark. Yeah. And they hit the ball, and as the train was passing through, one of the porters had caught the ball. He was out on the balcony. Yep. And they thought that this black guy that, you know, the war just ended and this was their first experience even seeing a black guy. Yep. And thought that he just stole their ball because he didn't toss it back into him. Yeah, these kids were devastated. Yeah. And they saved all their money up for it. And yeah. Didn't it was their price. It was all taped up and all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff because they couldn't afford another ball. Yep. And now they're without it. So what was it, a couple weeks later that the train come through and he had tossed the ball back into the kids and had it signed with all these famous baseball players and all that kind of stuff that were riding on the trains? Yeah, it had like Babe Ruth's signature on it, Uh a really well-known second baseman's signature was on it. You know, like you said, this was the first interaction that these kids ever had with a black man. Right. And so their first thought was like- He just just, robbed me. Yeah, how horrible. (laughs) I mean, these kids were devastated. They- couldn't just go buy another ball. No. And then he came through, threw another one at him. And then it was it went on to say that every time that train would come through, it was every few weeks, it would pass through right through the middle of their baseball field. He would throw out another ball to these kids and either it had signatures of other baseball players on it or it was just an empty ball. But yeah. he, he kind of helped make sure they always had a ball to play with. And mm. it really changed the way they viewed people. Yeah. And this would have been coming out of his own money to be buying these balls and tossing yeah. them out. They're just something he liked to do. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like the company was buying these balls. Right. You're right. I didn't even think about that. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah pretty cool. I like that story. There's a, a book called Pullman's Porters. And I, that's where I got that story from is an interview or like a, wasn't an interview. It was a, just like a meeting that the guy did with a group of people. And he had actual porters there, which there are no porters. I think they stopped using them in the 30s or the 40s. 
So these guys were old and, and it was fun to hear their stories. You can find that video on YouTube, but I want to get that book and read more about it. Maybe we can do an episode one day on just supporters alone because mm-hmm. it's really interesting. Yeah, way cool. Mm-hmm. Well, eventually George died. He did? Yeah. Yeah, we remember we were talking about his grave. <laughs> well, um, <laughs> he lived to be 66 years old when he passed away on October 19th, 1897 from a heart attack. A heart attack? A heart attack. <laughs> That's also, I don't know if you know, but something happened on that day as well. Yeah, I see that it was your birthday. Yay, happy birthday to me. <laughs> like a hundred years before. What did you get for your birthday that year? Oh, I just so happened to have it right here. No, not this year. Oh. 1897. Oh. Put your spoons down. Well, that would fit for then too. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Anyway, so he had a heart attack. Uh, he was so worried that his former employees or labor supporters might try to dig up his body that he had made special arrangements for his burial. Yeah, so we kind of talked about it in Mile Marker 23, but we want to talk about it again because it's just absolutely crazy what he requested. So he wanted to be buried in the middle of the night. He's a little paranoid. And his body was placed in a lead-lined mahogany coffin. It was then placed and sealed up inside of a block of concrete. At the cemetery, he had them dig out a large pit. The base and walls were reinforced with 18 inches of concrete. The coffin was then lowered and covered with tar paper and asphalt. Once that was completed, it was covered with more concrete, followed by a layer of steel rails bolted together at right angles, then more concrete. It's a lot of concrete. Yeah. The entire process took two days to complete. He requested that Solon Spencer Beeman, the Pullman Town architect, design and build his monument. Could you imagine if the cemetery was going to move and they gave the family members a chance to come and get their family members out of there? He's staying. Yeah. (laughs) The family would be like, look, dude, I'm really sorry to do this to you, but I can't afford to move you because it's going to take like a month to dig you out of here. Yeah. (laughs) That's kind of funny. That's not happening. The park is just going to have... This giant column in the middle of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of that, so his column, this yeah. monument is an enormous, perhaps 30-foot tall Corinthian column with the name Pullman engraved at the base of it. Mm-hmm. On each side, there are large, elaborately decorated couch-style mourning areas. If you spend some time in the Graceland Cemetery, you'll not miss this marker. And if you're anywhere near the Graceland Cemetery, stop. Yes. It is awesome. (laughs) I know. Honestly, there's not a lot of like cemeteries that we've driven through that I'm like, I really want to go back. This is one of them Mm -hmm. because we didn't get to spend a lot of time there. And I feel like we could spend weeks there. Yeah. We kind of got kicked out. (laughs) Yeah. And we just saw this one by chance, really, when we were leaving. And I saw the the big column. I'm like, and I saw Pullman and I put it all together. I'm like, wait, stop. Yeah, they were, cha- were trying to find it and they're chasing us out of the, <laughs> the Yeah, park, like, the fuzz was on us. Like, <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, very well worth the stop. You'd mm-hmm. spend a lot of time out there if you're interested in any of this stuff. And yeah. if you're listening to this, there's a good chance you are. Yeah. <laughs> and if not, thanks for listening. 
<laughs> well, there you have it, folks. That's one of the many reasons we stopped at the Graceland Cemetery on our adventure through Chicago. Love the man or hate him, he's an interesting part of America's history. Yeah, we still will see things that say Pullman. Mm-hmm. We were at the museum in Wyoming with the double-decker outhouse mm-hmm. encampment. Remember? Yep. And the big Pullman like tablecloth that was in display and all that. Mm-hmm. It's fun. Well, much of the information I found from this episode came from Britannica.com, NPS.gov, and PullmanMuseum.org. Very cool. I hate to ask, but... Oh, please do. Are you doing a dad joke? I am. Oh. Um, It doesn't have anything to do with anything we talked about. These are the best. But I thought it was funny, and I've gotten some pretty good reactions of this one. (laughs) I can't wait. Okay, so this is a truth fact. Do you know why a milking stool only has three legs? Why does a milking stool only have three legs? Because the cow has the udder. (coughs) The udder. (laughs) I, I heard it, yeah. (laughs) i love it (laughs) (laughs) all right then that's a good question though i do wonder why it only has three legs aside from the joke (laughs) all right then (laughs) thank you again for listening if you continue to do so <laughs> Thanks for listening and supporting the Rebel at Large Adventure Podcast. Uh, if you'd like to follow along on our adventures, we're most active on the Instagram. At Rebel at Large. Uh, we post pictures of our adventures as well as relevant links on our website. Rebelatlarge.com, where you'll also find links to other social deals as well as our email. Yeah, if you want to tell us what you think about them jokes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> righty. well, we'll talk to you here in a couple of weeks, folks. Safe travels. We'll see y'all down the road. the third of ten children because the city was installing installing sounded funny Mm. (laughs) I forgot the T before this before this passengers would have a little a little a tiny they would have a tiny can you pause like I just want to talk to you for a second and this switching this is um, this is how never mind I'm fucking that all up no, tell me. I was trying to think, is it Jesse James? This is how Jesse James was so successful, is they staged horses along a oh, route. and Butch Cassidy. Yeah, and they would switch them. Mm-hmm, yeah. Oh, yeah, maybe it's Butch Cassidy I'm thinking of. Yeah. I feel like the James gang did it, too. They probably did, because it's but, smart. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. how they could outrun people. Yep. So, yeah. Same type of thing. So they built their own little versions of switching stations, but I'll probably just cut all that out. Okay. The same year, his wife Harriet gave birth to their first... To their first. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
their first child. You can cut this part out, but I remember reading something somewhere that because George Pullman had so many cars and so many people were wanting to use them, it was forcing the rail companies to have to expand their tracks to fit his specific car on their track. Because hmm. each rail line had different sized tracks. Hmm. So some of them couldn't use his train. And they were seeing how much money these guys were making from passengers that they found it like profitable to widen their tracks or, you know, do whatever they needed to do to make it so they could use these Pullman cars on their tracks. So he almost kind of started the standardized standard standardization mm-hmm. of the track size. Yeah. Kind of cool, huh? Yeah, definitely. That's cool. So this kind of gives you an idea of how things went down over the next few days. By June 27th, 5,000 workers on the railroad. <laughs> on the what? The railroad? The railroad. <laughs> okay, let me start over. Okay. <laughs> One more time. Third time to charm. Did I do it? Yes. Nailed it. Well, the sight of the militia upset the strikers. The sight of the military upset them as much. Yes, they did. A national commission was formed to study the case of the 1894 strike. And the causes. Yeah. What did I say? Case. I'll start off. 